Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. Today, we are going to be looking at Mark uh, chapter 10, verses 2 through 12. Uh, And this particular passage is where Jesus responds to the Pharisees regarding divorce. And I think it's text that uh, people often turn to today to try to learn what is their Christian response to divorce. So listen up. I think you're going to find out a lot about um, the the text, a lot about the tradition um, in um, the Jewish world. And also then as we move to the Reformation, you're going to find out a lot about how the Reformers looked at this passage. So Alan... Take us away. Yeah. Well, as, as Christy said, that here we're dealing with Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce, and it is challenging to us in our day where uh, divorce and remarriage are so common. Um, it would have been challenging. We may not realize that it would have been challenging also in the original context of the early church, not only in the Greco-Roman world, but also in the Jewish context. So where does this... Uh, it- start put this in the context for us today well we we begin with mark 10 1 actually although the lectionary doesn't include it and mark has the note that he left that place and went to the region of judea and beyond the jordan and it's probably better to understand this uh, in the way the the common english bible translates it jesus left that place and went beyond the jordan and into the region region of judea there's been quite a bit of uh, textual uh, variation on this verse mm. because it doesn't make sense that he went into the region of Judea and then went into the region beyond the Jordan. Mm-mm. And so there have been all kinds of ways that the textual tradition has tried to fix that. And probably it's it's more likely that what's happening here is that the ultimate destination is, is mentioned first and then the means or the, the sort of the yeah. way through which he got there is mentioned second. Right. That makes sense. Now, that place in the context of Mark's gospel would refer most logically to Capernaum. Capernaum. That was the last place specifically mentioned in Mm -hmm, uh, Mark mm -hmm. 9.33. And, you know, one of the things I think we can note is that although Mark does not emphasize it explicitly here, after the transfiguration, Jesus is moving in the general direction of Jerusalem. And in Mark 10.32, later in this chapter, we'll see that it's explicitly stated that they were on the road yeah. going up to yeah. Jerusalem. Yeah, and at least when I, I read it as a cursory read, I, Capernaum was obvious to me. Mm-hmm. So I, mm-hmm. I, I think others would assume that. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's move on. What, ha- what happens? So then Mark sets the scene by saying that crowds again gathered around him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Now... I think Jesus has clearly established a pattern of teaching in Mark's gospel. Mm -hmm. He's taught in the synagogue in Mark 1 and Mark 6. He's taught in villages in Mark 6. He's taught in crowds in Mark 2 and Mark 4 and Mark 6. What is is the setting? Well, obviously Jesus is teaching this large crowd, and it seems to be a perfect place for his opponents to try to trap him Mm -hmm. by posing a question that would be difficult for him to answer publicly, as we saw in Matthew's gospel last year Mm -hmm. when we dealt with that whole series of dialogues between the Jewish leaders in Jesus uh, toward the end of his life. So Mark tells us that some Pharisees came and to test him, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife in Mark 10, 2? Now, I think for us to be able to kind of even get a handle on this, we have to understand just the whole place of marriage and divorce in general in that time frame. Well, I'm going to point out just how it's stated. 
is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And in our modern context, it could either partner could initiate right. a divorce. So right. there's already clues here that this is a different kind of arrangement than a modern mm-hmm. marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in antiquity, generally, marriage was more of a social and legal contract between two families that was intended to promote the interest of both families in terms of offspring and property. In the Greek and Roman world, divorce was common, and both men and women could initiate divorce, especially in the Roman world. Mm-hmm. And um, one commentator notes that two main causes of divorce were adultery and infertility. But mutual consent and the approval of both families was also sufficient. So, um, you know, I don't have any statistics on how widespread or common it was, but it was something that was done. Now, on the other hand, in Jewish society, there was the ideal and then there was the reality. Um, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, which the Pharisees allude to in response to Jesus, regulated divorce in the Jewish world, and it implied that only a man could initiate divorce Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if he found something that displeased him in his wife. And this is confirmed by rabbinic rabbinic materials, which also present that um, interpretation. There are, however, papyri that show or or suggest, at least, that the actual situation in the first century was more fluid than what Mm -hmm. the rabbis prescribed. We have to remember that the rabbinic teachings began to be collected in the first century, Mm -hmm, and this mm -hmm. was a process that concluded at AD 200, about 200 years later, Mm -hmm. and continued on into the 6th Mm -hmm. and 7th centuries with the Talmud. So, um, you know, they may reflect the ideal, but they may not necessarily reflect the reality on the ground Mm -hmm. uh, in the first century. Now, for one thing, uh, it it would seem that the notion of divorce was abhorrent to God was a factor Mm -hmm. in some Jewish settings, right? Malachi 2, 14 through 16 uh, says, do not let anyone be faithless to the wife of his youth, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, so take heed to yourselves and do not be faithless. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yet there is some ambiguity in the Hebrew text, and the Septuagint ironically takes it in a very different direction. Hmm. That last verse, it says, uh, guard yourselves in spirit and do not forsake the wife of your youth, but it adds then, but if you hate her, divorce her, says the Lord, the God of Israel. That is interesting <laughs> that the Septuagint has this added little piece. Well, it would seem that the Septuagint has assimilated Malachi 2.16 to Deuteronomy chapter 24, which, of course, <laughs> uh, permits a husband to divorce yeah. his wife. Oh, yeah. But there, and, and there's a similar situation going on in Qumran. There are clear statements to the effect that divorce was prohibited in the Qumran community on the basis of Genesis 1.27. Uh, and we'll see this comes up with Jesus as well, especially in the Damascus document, uh, which was sort of considered to be the rule of life for the communion for the Qumran community. But there are other texts, even in the Damascus doctor, document, that suggest that the practice at Qumran was to forbid remarriage after divorce if the first mm-hmm. spouse was still living. So divorce was practiced, but they right. one could not remarry right. uh, um, uh, after after divorce if the first spouse was still living yeah okay now um some argue based on a document from the second century um some argue based on josephus experience josephus was married and divorced uh, and and uh some argue based on herod's and herodias's herodias's experience basically she divorced her husband Mm -hmm. that jewish women could initiate divorce Um, that has not been the consensus up until recent days, but I think the papyri 
have have sort of introduced a question mark here, and I think it's fair to say that the evidence about the reality of divorce in Jewish society is still inconclusive. An interesting <clears throat> thing that that I'm thinking about here is, and and something of interest to me is. You clearly have a, a tradition within Jewish society, but you also have the influence from Rome. And you have, um, exactly. particularly during the Pax Romana, you had this this kind of opening up of women's rights a little bit. And well, so you, and have, you, know, you have this kind of battle going on. I mean, you know Herodias is also familiar, gosh, especially with, with what's going on with Roman women. And so it is an interesting, um, it, it, I, I don't know if someone has done that, that careful Oh research. yes, oh yes. When all of Judea has been un, has been under Hellenistic rule for three hundred years, right? By right. the time of Jesus, but I, I guess my question is, you know, is is uh, to what extent are are women responding to those Roman? Mm-hmm. Influ- I mean, because I a lot of times when I a lot of times when I'm when I'm talking with 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 experts in Scripture, they they kind of push away the Greco-Roman influence, which mm-hmm. I think is obviously quite big yeah I, I wouldn't i wouldn't do that i think in the time of jesus um definitely the greco-roman culture had long influenced oh, jewish yeah. society absolutely. And, and rome was also exerting its influence absolutely and, and like i said we have these papyri that have been discovered and published like in the 90s right. that 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 suggests that perhaps women did divorce did initiate divorce in Jewish society, I, I, I which, bet it did. which it, was, you know, is different from what the rabbis uh, suggest. Was well, the norm. exactly, exactly. It really probably depends on how much power the the individual Pharisaic kinds of um, of leaders had over the. Over well, the town, and to I would say extent. it probably also depended on how much power the woman and or her family. Well, of was course, able oh, of course, that, yeah. that's uh, that's also really good. Yeah. So, in other words. This is not a black and white thing. Yes, this is, exactly. This is much muddier than um, I mean, it we seems, might want to believe. It seems likely that it would have been exceptional for women to initiate divorce in the first century world, but it was not, un, it was not but unheard it of and exactly. it was done. Yeah. And, and I want to point this out, um, that this is muddy, and this is going to be muddy throughout our history, and like mm-hmm. in the medieval world and in the Reformation and world. And it's still muddy today. Yeah, Let's move on. <laughs> okay, I think it's important for us to note uh, again, as we're still dealing with this, is yeah. that is that the intent of the Pharisees' question about divorce was to test Jesus. So Jesus is responding to this challenge, right? And that's yes. and so what yes. Jesus has to yes. say here is in response to this exactly. challenge. Exactly, that's something that's important to yeah. see. Yeah. Yep. But many New Testament scholars have claimed that this question, uh, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, would not have made sense coming from the Pharisees because, of course, a man, it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. This was just would have been taken for granted. And so, therefore, perhaps the gospel tradition created this setting on a basis as a basis for conveying Jesus' teaching on a subject that was of concern to the early church. On the other hand, I think I think it's quite clear that the whole issue of divorce and remarriage was in the air, and we can just remind ourselves about John the Baptist yep. that he had raised the issue with Herod Antipas, yes. unlawful marriage, marriage to Herodias, Herodias, as he says in Mark six eighteen. Um, and and what we may not know is that Herod Antipas' divorce was from the daughter of the Nabataean king, and the Nabataean kingdom was just to the right. east of the Jordan River, and it was a it was definitely a rival in terms mm-hmm. of power, and actually created a war. So it resulted in a war with with Herod Antipas. So um, this was a politically charged question, mm-hmm. and um, I. I 
you know, Matthew's gospel also recounts that the Pharisees asked the question to try to test Jesus. Yep. But his version of the question makes a little bit more sense to many New Testament scholars because in, in Matthew 19, 3, the question is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? Right? Th- yes. And that was, a dis- that was a debate among the Pharisees, yeah. Uh, yeah. Among, the, among the rabbis in the first century world. What was the appropriate cause right. for divorcing right. a wife? Uh, so, I, I, I don't, I don't really think we have to say that this was this was created for, uh, out of a church setting. I mean, I think this could reflect Jesus' teaching uh, on the subject because, as again, I, I think the question of divorce was around the fact that that there were there were some indications, you know, the fact that you had the Malachi text and that was around the fact that you had indications of. Um, of something similar to what Jesus was teaching in the Qumran community. You know, um, I, I think this this question could have been one that was on their minds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how does Jesus respond? Well, Jesus responds by asking, what did Moses command you? Which d- doesn't come as a surprise to us. Now, mm-hmm. notice he doesn't say, what did the rabbis t- teach or what was the tradition of the elders? And we've already covered that ground, of course. Right, right. Uh, and the Pharisees answered, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. Referring to the passage in Deuteronomy 24, verses 2 and 3, where Moses prescribed a certificate of divorce. Now, again, it's important for us to note the language. Jesus asks, what did Moses command you? And the Pharisees answered, Moses allowed or permitted a man Mm -hmm. to write Mm -hmm. a certificate of divorce and thus to divorce his wife. Now, that's really the fundamental question there here is whether Moses commanded divorce or whether he commanded the writing of a certificate in the case of a divorce. And it would seem that that Jesus was was trying to draw, uh, maybe press home the point that it was actually the latter. Moses mm-hmm. didn't command anybody to divorce. Exactly. But he commanded the, 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 the issuing of a certificate in the right. case of divorce. Now, in the original context, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 is actually a fairly interesting bit of casuistic law, you know, because it's very prescribed in a very set of cer- specific set of circumstances, and it addresses the situation of a man who has divorced his wife, and she has been married to another man, and then she divorces him, and then basically Moses says that the original man cannot marry his, his original wife after she has been married to someone else. And I, I've always thought this was interesting. I wonder, I've always wondered that maybe Moses was, um, maybe, maybe there were men who were trying to abuse divorce as a way of, of like garnering another man's property or something. Yeah, I don't you wonder. Know. Well, that's that's kind of what I would assume from yeah, that because yeah. going back to you have to remember the institution of marriage and and it had to th- do with property. It had to yeah. do with property. Yeah, so yeah. that's possible. Yeah, interesting. Now, I think uh, very clearly what Moses was doing was attempting to normalize the status of a woman who was sent away by her husband with the introduction of her certificate of divorce. Um, and you know, basically, um, without that, she would have been destitute in Jewish society. And so this, this enables her to remarry. So the assumption is that both, both parties will remarry. Moses just says, if you divorce a wife and she marries somebody else, you can't go back and remarry her. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's, let's keep working through it. So 
um, Jesus countered the Pharisees. Yes, basically um, he said, you said, know, look. <laughs> yeah, it was because of your hardness of heart that he wrote this commandment for you. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously he's not thinking about the people who were standing there or the, those Pharisees right, specifically. Right. Your means, you know, the people of the Israel. The people of Israel, yeah. And, yeah. and the people of Israel was a fluid enough concept that it included the ancestors who would have been with Moses, right. you know, during the wilderness wanderings. Uh, and would have received the original uh, prescription, exactly, as well as the people up until that day. So when right. he says you, it's sort of this all-inclusive you, your hardness. Hardness of heart is interesting, though, because it's a relatively uncommon word, although we've, we've seen something about hardness of heart in Mark before in connection with the disciples, uh, and we see it in mm-hmm. the Hebrew Bible. The concept right. of stubbornness, is one, ironically, that is very common in Deuteronomy itself. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, although it only uses the, the Greek word sclerocardion, hardness of heart, once. Um, typically, um, Deuteronomy uses sclerotrachelos, which means stiff-necked, mm. or some variation of that more frequently. Um, but this concept of the stubbornness of the people of Israel is very common in, the, in Deuteronomy as well as in the prophets and mm-hmm. as well as in Exodus. And it describes basically the people's continual and deliberate disobedience to yeah. God. And so Jesus, yeah. you know, it's funny that Jesus um, extends that. He, you know, he uses this fluid concept of Israel to say that, you know, the, 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 the ancestors were had heart their hearts were hard right. and that's why Moses right. gave them this certificate this prescription about a certificate but guess what right. your hearts are hard too and you're you it, fall under those same those same right uh, yeah rebukes. right right and it, it it's it's that kind of reminder that um that this isn't something God planned for but yeah. but because people are continually I'm going to put it into the context of sin mm-hmm. because they continue to sin we're not gonna we're gonna allow for this divorce because the sins. I mean, my interpretation is the sins that continue to happen is you are living with someone who is hating you or putting mm-hmm. you at risk or threatening to kill you is, is likely worse than surely, the divorce. Surely. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, you know, if you, if, you, if you actually read the rabbis' debates about divorce and the basis for divorce, it, it's almost as if some of them were actually trying to find any loophole any possible loophole to allow a man to get out of a marriage. And which, you know, that seems kind of, sounds kind of familiar today, mm, yeah, right? Does, you know, yeah. people are looking for any excuse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jesus then goes beyond Moses and mm-hmm. he appeals to the original intention of marriage, but from the beginning of creation. And this is significant. Jesus goes back to the beginning mm-hmm. of creation. God made them male and female. Here he's quoting Genesis 1.27. Right. Now, as we've seen before, the Qumran community in the Damascus document, they quoted Genesis 1.27 mm-hmm. with regard to marriage and, uh, marriage and divorce and remarriage. Um, but here Jesus combines that passage with a second one, which was a common technique in Jewish biblical interpretation, Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Mm-hmm. So you've got this male and female. In the beginning, God created the male and female. You've got the two, and I think that's connected then with logically with Genesis 2.24, the two shall become one mm-hmm. flesh. The, the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one mm-hmm. flesh. So then Jesus draws two simple conclusions from these scripture citations. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
And in in the original context, this could have referred to um, sexuality and marriage, but it also could have referred to um, children mm-hmm. uh, that that the that the people are joined when they have children. the The second conclusion draw seems to seems to flow from that: what God has joined together, let no one separate. And it seems pretty straightforward here that Jesus refers to God. God's intention for marriage as a permanent relationship that precludes divorce altogether. Yeah. There, there's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. There are no exceptions here. It is simply altogether. But again, I think it's important to note that this teaching was couched as a response to a polemical attack, not, first and foremost, as a pastoral mm-hmm. comment or right. pastoral counsel. So um, we, we find some of that going on, I think, in the development of the gospel tradition, as well as in the way in which divorce and remarriage were treated in the right. early church in Paul's yeah. letters. Yeah. So we find that, that, that issue of needing to t- treat this in a pastoral context beginning to emerge. Yeah, yeah, I see that as well. And I, it, you know, as I think about this also, this ideal, this ideal of, of what marriage would look like if indeed the sin of humanity didn't take over. I mean, it's, it's just a, well, and I've known some couples that have been married for a lifetime and were in love for a lifetime. Yeah. 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 I do too. And it's always interesting. Often we know that once one passes, the other passes usually shortly thereafter. They're very much. Well, we had a couple, we had a couple like that just pass away in in our congregation. You did. That's right. You did. Lovely couple. And, (laughs) you know, just in love with each other to the end. To the end. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, as we go on, then it comes as no surprise that the disciples questioned Jesus about this when they were in private, because this went against centuries of Jewish tradition. You know, it, was, it would have been just assumed, well, of course a man can divorce his wife. This is just, I mean, this is what it means to be a man. A man, is, a man has this right and this authority, and mm-hmm. if a man doesn't have this right, then he's not a man, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, um, one commentator put it this way, it would have made about as much sense to ask, could a man sell a cow and exactly. then buy another cow? Exactly. You know, <laughs> in, in some of their minds. But Jesus answered their question by, by applying, I would say, by implication, the command against adultery. Mm-hmm. Uh, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Now, the question is, how do you translate that last phrase? Is it against her, which seems to imply um, against his basically his former wife? Mm-hmm. He, was, he was guilty right. of adultery right. against his former wife. There's some who've tried to take this as with her. In other words, he's committing adultery with his second wife. And, and um, I think a lot of people, especially in, in some conservative context today, have sort of jumped on that to say, well, if you, if you remarry after divorce, you're living in a constant state of adultery. Mm-hmm. I, it doesn't make much sense out of the text here. I mean, I think it seems pretty logical that, 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 that when G- what Jesus is saying is that if a man uh, divorces his wife and marries another woman while his wife is still living, mm-hmm. um, while his first wife is still living, he would be guilty of adultery against his former wife. Um, now, you know, again, one of the technicalities of Jewish law was that in Jewish law, a man could commit adultery only against another man by having sexual relations with that other man's wife. Um, and this seems to actually be reflected in some of the other versions of this saying we find, for example, in Matthew five thirty two, anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity causes her to commit adultery. Mm -hmm. 
and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Right. So it's the it's you know it doesn't you know it's the man who's committing adultery. It's right. not the woman right. who's you know here the woman is committing adultery against the man. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's it's only the man that can be offended in this regard, not the mm-hmm. woman. Mm-hmm. And Luke sixteen eighteen ironically says anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. In other words, yep. the man. The man. That's right. all in, in masculine. Right. Mm-hmm. right. So, um, you know, a lot of people have, have wondered about this in light of that. And um, um, basically, I think we should take it at its face value. You know, mm-hmm. basically, I think what Jesus was doing was was giving really some groundbreaking teaching here and that it redefined adultery by making men right. accountable not only to other men, but also that's to their wives. wives. And that that's kind of a huge one um, because that's a huge piece for the reformers. Well, um, and it's a big step in, in even in Jewish society. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, and, I mean, and in the big, Greco-Roman big, world of that day, yeah. I mean, you know, the idea that a man was right. was 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 uh, responsible to his wife—that right. was just not a common feature in the whole Mediterranean world. As we are doing this, we're in the middle of watching um, the refugees from Afghanistan come, and so I've been doing a little bit of additional research on on ref, on Afghan women, and in Afghan women, this mm-hmm. are very much. In that situation. In this situation, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's all defined by the men. And even if he leaves and he says, I divorce you, she's still legally attached to him mm-hmm. and, and cannot function without him. So right. you can't even be uh, like we would in a modern sense be able to have some agency of our own as right. women. So they just are out there. They're, they're divorced from the man who's the only one allowed to initiate the divorce and then they, but they're still attached to him. It's, mm-hmm. it's a very problematic. And mm-hmm. I, I guess it's really making this wake up in my mind. Sure. Yeah. Sure. That would have been very similar to the reality. Yeah, very similar that to that day. reality. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So then Jesus, and the, Jesus is not finished astounding people because he then goes and applies the same principle to a woman who divorces her husband. And if she divorces her husband yeah. and marries another, she commits adultery. So it works both ways in Jesus' mind. But again, you know, the parallel in Matthew 19.9 does not include this saying. It only includes the Mm -hmm. saying about the husband divorcing his wife. And this raises the question about whether Jesus originally made this statement and thus reflects the possibility that women could actually initiate divorce in Jewish society, or or whether, as has commonly been observed, that it was an extension of Jesus' teaching in a Gentile Christian Mm -hmm. context. Many folks have pointed out that Mark was addressing a church Mm -hmm. at Rome. Right. And, you know, we see, for example, 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul is addressing the church at Corinth. It addresses both husband and wife and may imply that the women had the right to divorce, even though the terminology is not the same. Here, the terminology for divorce is apoluo, and Uh there it's uh, the word corizo, which is separate, although night and low in their their, uh, dictionary of Greek uh, terms, according to semantic domains, uh, they, they group both of these words under the general heading of divorce. Okay. Yeah. Huh. And huh. in fact, the terminology of corizo is is the language found in Mark 10, 9. Let no one, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's also found in papyri copies of divorce records from antiquity. So mm. so there's, there's some fluidity in the language and we probably ought not to draw two distinct lines. Okay, okay. But, but here, the, here the issue is that basically Jesus 
you know, not only does he say men are accountable to their wives, but then he comes back back and says that the wives are accountable to their husbands. It's really, really cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, this is, this is a whole push for an equality in a sense, in a a different way. There's also an an accountability that comes with um, Jesus uh, recognition of equality, but it's, it's a big deal. It is a big deal. Yeah. So I think it's impossible to avoid the conclusion that Mark's version of Jesus' position on marriage and divorce is that marriage commits both partners to one another for life. Thus, there is no possibility of remarriage after divorce. We see, however, that Matthew's version mentions an exception to this mm-hmm. rule. And it's the, you know, the well-known exception, unchastity or infidelity. It's the Greek word pornia. And perhaps this reflects what was the commonly held conservative view of divorce and remarriage among the rabbis. This, and this was, you know, mm-hmm. the, among the debate among the rabbis, there were some who basically said that a man could divorce his wife for anything that displeased him. The, the sort of the conservative school, the school of, um, I forget, I think it was Shammai, um, said, no, the only legitimate cause for divorce was infidelity. And again, if, if the divorce was legitimate, then that permitted remarriage. And so they permitted remarriage after divorce. And it would, and, and so the implication is that this exception clause in Matthew seems to permit remarriage after divorce Mm -hmm. in the case of infidelity. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, really another, you know, so the question really arises whether Jesus actually permitted divorce and remarriage in that situation, or was this an application of Jesus teaching in a Jewish Christian mm. context. So, so, you know, was this a felt sort of question? Was this a pastoral question that came up? Well, what about, what if my wife is unfaithful to me? You know, mm-hmm. am I not allowed to divorce her and remarry in that case? That would have been well, a well-known situation in Jewish society. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps, I mean, it, it is possible that Jesus permitted that, but it's also possible, I think, that Matthew is sort of extending Jesus' teaching and, and, and accommodating it to this well-known sort of exception mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to the prohibition against divorce and remarriage. Mm-hmm. And we see something similar, I think, in 1 Corinthians yeah. 7, where Paul allows the situation where a Christian has an unbelieving spouse, and if the spouse wishes to separate, which seems, yeah. he says, yeah. let them go, and that seems to allow for divorce and remarriage. So really, you know, what we, what we see is, I think, Mark presents us with perhaps shall we say, the, the, the Jesus teaching on marriage and, and divorce in its purest form. Mm-hmm. You know, marriage is intended to be a permanent relationship. permanent relationship. If you divorce, you may not remarry as long as your original spouse is still alive. Right. Um, what we see then in Matthew and, and Paul, perhaps, is the beginning of some situations where, well, what about this? Right. And that's, right. that's really what Moses was doing. Right. What about this what situation? What about this situation or that situation? Right. And, and, and the reformer is going to hit on that even more, you know, to the point of where divorce is, I mean, not something you want to take lightly, but does need to happen in certain mm-hmm. situations if things cannot be reconciled. Right. So, right. Um, but, uh, I think in today's world, when people ask and they, they read this and they take it for face value, it's very terrifying mm-hmm. if they're in a bad relationship. Sure. So. sure. Well, unfortunately it gets used as a weapon against them. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll be back. 
right. and uh, talk about Reformation. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're continuing our um, pretty intense discussion today, and we're going to take it into a different uh, mode with uh, Christy uh, talking to us about the Reformers. So talk to us about the Reformers and marriage and divorce. Right. So I, I, I did look at the passages, and I did look at how um, Calvin responded to them, but I really, I really decided to spend most of my effort here really talking about the change in divorce that happened with the Protestant Reformation. Um, and as you remember, a couple weeks ago, we talked about children um, and children in the Reformation. And so we learned then that the family became the ideal for God's intention for our lives. Um, and while children are the obvious result of marriage, um, I did not, a couple weeks ago, specifically address marriage and divorce. Um, and uh Again, it might not seem important. Why do we need to look at how the reformers looked at divorce? But it really shaped um, it really shaped our role as Christian men and women uh, today, and how we how we define those roles today. So it is kind of a it is kind of a big deal. It's it's not that again. People try to look at the church today. They try to go back and apply old old thinking or or old processing, like putting the church back to when it was first founded without realizing there's a whole history mm-hmm. that has built on how we, where we are at today. It just doesn't well, even work. I mean, and that's the other sort of side to the quote-unquote literal Bible interpretation that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, you know, mm-hmm. is that some people seem to feel like you can just take biblical teachings about any subject and right. just slap them onto the 21st century. Right. And there's a whole history between exactly. them. So. I encourage us to look at the Reformation as part of our ongoing reforming tradition um, and, the, and a, as a trajectory that, that helps us reevaluate what it means to be a family and what marriage means in our contemporary I wanted to era. say I love that word trajectory because I think, you know, it's a little, it reminds me of the, the you know, what we talked about with Jewish biblical interpretation as a living dialogue mm-hmm, with the mm-hmm. text that's still going on. And, you know, I think that's where we are. You know, we, we are we are in this trajectory mm-hmm. of, you know, how can we be faithful to God? How right. can we be faithful to Christ in our specific situation? Exactly. And every generation exactly. has to ask that question anew right. in many different ways. And the biggest, you know, the biggest danger of this today that I see um, is that really the damage it does, particularly to women. Absolutely. And... Um, I I continue to say, and I will continue to say, that as long as women are restricted in their ability to spread, uh, to preach the word um, in various denominations, we continue to um, place women as not not equal, which I think was a bigger press of Christ. And I think we, when we look at the scripture, one of the few things we do get about it is this move ahead Absolutely. towards giving women some credibility towards protecting their Well, the New Testament, I think the New Testament was really not only this statement that Jesus makes, but also some of the statements Paul makes. I know Paul gets a bad rap in our society, exactly. but in his context, his he was context. radically egalitarian. Exactly. So again, trajectories, the word there, instead mm-hmm. of trying to take a, one of those little bits of text out and mm-hmm. slap it on something today, and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So... Marriage. <laughs> and so I want to head back to the Middle Ages because, you know, 
Alan was saying, well, look, we've got these, um, we've got pretty careful definitions of what happened and, and how divorce and marriage were handled in the, in the Jewish world and in the ancient world. But Middle Ages, you have to, and I, I hate to use a term that's kind of outdated, but Dark Ages, um, only because you have, because when the Roman Empire falls, everything that had been, had any kind of control over marriage disappeared. So marriage really became kind of a social construct made out of small localities, and it completely fell away from having any church control at Mm. all. And so marriage was a practice of necessity. Um, uh, It's still a patriarchal society, uh, but but again, not with the same kind of... um, Control women technically had few rights of their own. Uh, by and large, had to be under a male guardian. The men had to go do the public world. But we have examples of a few emancipated women, mm. women that could sign contracts. And so, could those women own property? Oh yeah, sometimes yeah. locally. Yeah. Mm. It, so it was a, rare. Um, there's but there's been some some work done on these women. They're they're kind of characters. Most of the time in the Middle Ages, especially for common women, we don't even know their names. Mm-hmm. So, and the only reason I point that out is is to say what we think is a reality is it's a little bit mushier than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were these occasions. One time, this uh, I apologize, can't think of the name. Um, she uh, she still had to bring a male guardian with her to deal with her stuff, mm-hmm. um, which was interesting. And in, in but the she court was records. the one essentially but calling yeah, the shots. Yeah, yeah, she called the shots. So mm-hmm. anyway, those are rare instances. If we look at how women are, are treated um, and how they get to this role, I, I like to go back and think about how how women ended up here in the first place. And I really relate, I believe, to biological function the reality of, that women were tied to having babies and caring for babies. Um, again, a childbirth, women often died in childbirth. Uh, so they wasn't even necessarily a promise that she would survive that. So having a lot of property, it just became natural to put that under the husband. So, you know, and, and we don't have this documented, but over time it just seemed easy. So then when we go look at the ancient codes, we see that women become valued for their ability to have babies. Um, and because that's how they perpetuate the, um, uh, the human race. So mm-hmm. it's the interesting, um, situation. So, um, the medieval, uh, so the medieval church developed, um, such that women, um, did have some agency in the nunneries and, and, and in that calling. And so that calling always, and, and for men who were in priests, was always above anything physical. And the mis- state of marriage was considered to be just kind of an, an, a necessity for families that and people that couldn't live this wonderful chast life, mm-hmm. and it really wasn't elevated at all. It was considered a lesser calling, mm-hmm. um, and um, there was a, there's lots of discussion amongst reformers of how marriage was just kind of mocked, um, and so and honestly, during the up, up until about the early 13th century the local customs determined what happened with marriage. So mm-hmm. it might be that these little ceremonies it might be laying in where you took the the young man and the one one woman and put them in bed together and that would be it that's the marriage ceremony marriage ceremony Mm -hmm. might be simply that she's pregnant and Mm -hmm. therefore or it might be a a private i marry you okay but what happened is they were running into problems where these uh, young men would say oh i'm not married to her but Mm -hmm. she's pregnant Mm -hmm. 
And then you end up with illegitimate children. Mm -hmm. And that became a problem for the church. Um, Because an illegitimate child was, it it was considered a a child made out of lust. Mm -hmm. And therefore um, was kind of in a perpetual state of sin. So... (laughs) <laughs> and that that person could not could not function in society. Exactly. There was no place for them in society exactly. in the medieval world. Exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> although there were lots of them, <laughs> right? And if you had a rich enough parent, like like a pope, <laughs> you could still, um, you know, you could still right. be fairly successful yeah. in the world. But uh, so they, um, the church started to take control over marriage in part to. Um, prevent that from happening mm-hmm. this kind of immediate divorces and I, I wasn't married and it's really it that's when it becomes part of the sacramental system they have it becomes one of the sacraments um and they begin to require certain types of re- record keeping for marriage yeah. so you have to have witnesses for right. marriage which we still do today right? right have to have witnesses to the marriage that legitimizes it all the children that keeps uh, a man Again, we're still just men can divorce, where a man can just divorce a woman. Um, and uh, it, so it provides some some control over the family. And I believe this really, I, I think it's 1215, the Fourth Lateran Council, where this all really, really comes down. Um, and the church really has this now kind of new control. So that's the basis of where we get to when we hit the Reformation. And so... 1215 again you've got the church it's it's a sacrament you have to be it has to be um true marriage has to be done under a priest and of course we're also taking more control over the baptism process just just more record keeping and you could say well (laughs) why didn't that happen before and in part because we're just in such a period of turmoil Mm um uh warring we don't have any consistent governments it's 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 really a time of just survival um and so by the time we get to the high middle ages which is what we're talking about 1215 the church really is in charge and of course this is our big time for building cathedrals etc and in in those days i mean it's hard for us to understand this perhaps but nations didn't function the way they function today so i want to fast forward to the reformation era and um, really, what's so fun about the Reformation era, we get to see the reality of, of divorce and how it works play out in front of us, all within the English Reformation and Henry VIII. Uh, because divorce becomes the number one issue, really, with the English Reformation. So you've got Calvin and Luther, and they were responding to um, this, this relationship that should always remain together, ideally, uh, but there is space for divorce. It's not a sacrament anymore. So that's, I have to say that has, that's one of the most surprising things I've learned from you is that the reformers, you know, tra- changed marriage from a from a sacrament to, I guess, mm-hmm. an ordinance. Would um, they? Would they make no, it even I, an ordinance? I, no, it's not an ordinance. Ah. It's 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 the ordinances are baptism even, and the Lord's Supper, the, right? Yeah, I mean, wow. uh, th- this is this is a, a human institution. Yeah, um, God looks favorably upon this relationship. It's the ideal relationship, but it's still something about that is done here on earth. It's earthly. It's, it's not earth, pertaining to the kingdom earthly. of God. It's it, earthly. It, it allows for hu- humanity to function. Mm. Um, 
And so it's kind of an interesting space. Sounds like it's a practical arrangement. It's it's more of a practical arrangement, mm. but they get rid of that sacramental status of it. Um, and so... I didn't expect that because you do that and then it sort of re- removes sort of a theological foundation for it. It does, un- but they still argue that the family is the, if you will, preordained uh, ideal for hum- human life. Yeah. But I think they... And, and that the God calls for that. And so they don't, uh, any kind of divorce would only come after reconciliation was deemed impossible. So the church comes right in the middle of that whole process. Yeah. But there's this sense of we can't force people to live together when they are when they are each, at each other's throats, when there's a risk of an even greater sin. Um, that doesn't, that doesn't help anybody grow. So there seems to be this understanding that Divorce is a necessity. I, I find that to be a pretty astute observation on their part. You know, we can't force force people to stay married when there's a risk of an even greater sin. Mm-hmm. That's that's pretty astute. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. And they vary on their level where they're at. Right. Um, the probably the most liberal on this is Martin Bootser, and he actually takes the the quote that we just looked at. Um, so in our in our text, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And Bootser says, well, really, what God has not joined together. Man may put asunder. <laughs> His argument, and he argued, a marriage filled with anger is not one put together by God. Sure. We're not supposed to stay in that. So I thought that was an interesting, interesting comment. But anyway, back to Henry VIII, because this is where the whole divorce thing is played out. And I think it's pretty interesting because um, first thing about Henry, if you watch a lot of, of TV shows about him, you tend to think that this is just this lustful guy and he doesn't like his wife and he's just lusting. And he's actually a very, very religious guy, <laughs> despite his six wives. <laughs> um, but uh, he's actually quite a religious guy and he wants a divorce. And he, she, Catherine has um, a, a boy who dies. Um, of course, she has the daughter Mary, um, but there are no other live male children born and she's quite a bit older than he is and he has this reality of she's not having a son but in his mind is i'm being cursed by god i'm being cursed by god because this was my brother's wife Mm. i this should not have happened it should be annulled and frankly it would have been annulled in almost any world. The Pope would have said yeah you're a strong king i'll annul The, the, the the reason this was never annulled um is because Catherine of Aragon was the aunt of Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Empire, who was arguably the most powerful man in uh, on the, in Europe. Uh, he liked to knock at the Pope's door. He needed. Uh, you didn't want to anger him, and you certainly didn't want your aunt being disgraced by being divorced from. Uh, or, or have an annulment by the king. So this is just a, just an ugly thing that mm. happens. And that's when he started to listen to um, some of the arguments of Luther. And, and Thomas Cramner was involved. And uh, this idea that really marriage is not a sacrament. Um, this, there's only two sacraments instituted by Christ, and therefore, under appropriate circumstances, divorce is ac- absolutely allowable. And of course, then he learned also that if he would adopt um, a Protestant, and I'm not going to say Lutheran, he doesn't ever quite get there, um, but 
a Protestant approach that he could also um, cut himself off from the Pope and and and, and be more, even more powerful. It could be the supreme head of the church. Mm-hmm. So he does that as well. And so then he marries this younger Anne Boleyn. Um, so you see this kind of. I'm, I'm hearing mixed motives on Henry's part. You know, maybe mm-hmm. he maybe he had some pious uh, motivations here, but I'm hearing some mixed motivations on his part, definitely. <laughs> well, yeah, of course, right? And then Anne ends up, um, you know. And ends up not having a son either, um, has Elizabeth, and uh, he, anyway, she's eventually beheaded for witchcraft, and so he marries again, and he has a son, she dies in childbirth, so he, but in this whole, whole place of things, he, he wonders if he's being cursed, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I left, I left the Roman Catholic, we should keep all the traditions in, I think mm-hmm. that's right, and so you see this very strange place, but mm-hmm. what you see in England, then, is kind of the playing out of, of divorce, um, and, and what happens there in, in the Reformation. Um, so it is kind of a, a, that's a kind of long introduction. So divorce takes kind of a, a central stage in the Reformation world, but it becomes kind of interesting because it becomes, um, um, kind of the backdrop for, um, what, what is, what is the role of the church in these types of affairs and what, what really are, should not be. And so I think you begin to see the inklings of, is this something that should be controlled by a united church and state? You know, 1215, we get control over marriage or is, and divorce, or is this something that really should belong to two different realms? Mm. We're not there yet. We're not modern thinkers, but as we move in the next century and a half here, we're going to move to a modern era and we're going to start to say, this really is not, should not be an affair of the church. And Mm. we kind of get this interesting balance today, right? I mean, but it begins to ask these questions, you know, does a church have business coming in on your affairs of your divorce, which absolutely was part of where the reformers were. So Mm. we're not, we're not there, but we are starting to ask these questions. Um, If it is no longer a sacrament and, and what does that mean? Um, So, um, there's an interesting balance. So what I what I did is to have a peek at how divorce then is written up in the Westminster Confession. And um, it's kind of an interesting space. Um, there's an interesting balance uh, between the idea that divorce is an ordained way for humans to live together and raise families and an overarching understanding that it should not be dissolved. But you mean marriage is the ordained... Marriage is the ordained way for humans to live together. And yes, 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 yeah. yes. Did I, I'm sorry, I misspoke. Um, and uh, it should not be dissolved unless the nature of the union is more sinful um, than the union itself. In other words, there should be no frivolous divorces. And so in the Westminster Confessions, um, and I want to point out, the one that you have in your book of confessions is not the original. Um, it had been rewritten in the 1950s. So if you see your two sides there, these are this is later. The original one was actually kind of Reformation-esque, right? So these are, um, and these are written at, at Westminster Abbey. Um, and they're written as England is in the middle of its civil war. Mm. So we step mm-hmm. back a minute. Henry dies. We have uh, various power struggle. And eventually his daughter, Elizabeth, Anne Boleyn's daughter, comes to the throne. She has in the church what's called the Elizabethan Settlement. And both Roman Catholics and Protestants are allowed to worship there. She's able to maintain a status quo. She dies in 1603. 
then things start to change because she does not have any children. So then you get James the first, and then um, and then you'll get Charles the first, and Charles the first. This, so this is when those groups, which handled themselves under the uh, Elizabethan settlement, start to come at odds with each other. So you get a Roman Catholic faction, you get a if you will, kind of a Presbyterian faction, and then you're going to get the radicals with Oliver Cromwell. Mm. Um, but it's during Charles's reign that they meet together to decide what should be in the realm of England, what should be the ideal uh, church state. So church and state are together. What should it look like? So they're bringing in uh, Puritans. They're bringing in Presbyterians, Scottish Presbyterians. They're, they've invited people from all over Europe who are Reformed-minded, and they come and they put together the Westminster Confessions. Mm. Now, they're ultimately trashed by the Church of England, but they are adopted by the Scottish Church. Sure. Therefore, that's why we good Presbyterians... Um, have it very much as part of our heritage. Um, and I'm pointing out that even in 1950s, this has been rewritten. So um, anyway, the original ones is you should marry um, people of the Reformed faith. Avoid papists. <laughs> Love that. Um, very long description of basically what I defined down to, don't marry your cousin, <laughs> right? Uh, what was in there too. And, and it's still in there today, but it's not so, I mean, it's not quite so. Of course, that becomes, that actually becomes part of the state limitations, right? Mm -hmm. And then um, you may divorce your spouse um, if your spouse is unfaithful and remarry, but only if through adultery. That's how it's listed in 1950s, mm. prior to 1950. But the modern text amends it so that it allows for divorce because of human weakness. Mm. Um, and so there's this sense of the goal of Christ, the Redeemer, Christ who forgives. Um, and the church, the church can sanction remarriage with sufficient penitence. But it's interesting that in the original text of the Westminster Confession, it was only for the sake of adultery yeah. or infidelity, yeah. right? Exactly. So it's <laughs> right back to where it was yeah. before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So again, it's a slow process, but I think you can see how the Reformation and what happened there started to impact um, where we are today. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Hi, everybody. We are back. And, you know, I think divorce is one of our uh, real spaces when we're dealing with um, pastoral ministry because uh, we have so many people that, that come broken from divorce. And, and I was thinking today about a man um, in my congregation who was uh, really, really wondering if he had committed some um, um, unforgivable sin uh, mm. because he was divorced and was was actually asking if if um, we would preach on it. Um, will you preach on this? I, I want to hear because when I read the Bible, I see that I, I my my sins unforgivable. So hmm. I want to jump wow. into that place, Alan, because I think a lot of us run into um, that situation with folks. Yeah. Well, and you know, it really comes down to you know we've got the biblical ideal that's articulated fairly strongly for us in our passage for today. You know, marriage is meant to be a permanent relationship for life. Um, and if you divorce, there's no remarriage as long as your original spouse mm -hmm. is alive. That's that's seems to be the biblical ideal in, in, in Mark's gospel. 
but the real question is, how do you apply it in real life situations like this? And right. unfortunately, oh my gosh, there's so many people out there who have taken this language and translated into um, if a person divorces, they're living in perpetual adultery, even if they don't remarry. And certainly if a person divorces and remarried, yeah. they're yeah. living in perpetual yeah. adultery. Exactly. And in my opinion, that has to be one of the worst applications of biblical teaching. I don't think that is the point at all. And so I, th I think when it comes to this, you know, we have two extremes that we have to avoid. Um, one extreme is the extreme where we take such an overly literal approach to this text mm -hmm. that we, we beat people over the head with it, right. which has happened to this, this fellow, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, the other is just as real an issue for us in the Presbyterian world where we just kind of toss out the Bible. I, I have heard at a Presbyterian conference, a Presbyterian New Testament scholar advocate that all biblical statements about marriage are contextual, are situational. Mm -hmm. In other words, they're not normative. They're, they're, not, mm -hmm. they're not normative. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, there are a lot of examples in the Old Testament that talk about marriage under certain very prescribed situations, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And we would not advocate that as normative today. I mean, that's ridiculous. Right. You know, a, a woman is raped and she's forced to marry the man who raped her? No, that's ridiculous. But, you know, when Jesus says, you know, from the beginning God created the male and female and... You know, the man shall leave his father and mother and shall be and shall join to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate it. That doesn't sound very contextual or situational or, or mm -hmm. negotiable. You know, that mm -hmm. sounds pretty normative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, I, you know, our problem is how do we maintain the biblical ideal and yet right. apply it redemptively? Right. How do we apply it redemptively? Now, uh, uh, you know this. I'm going to mention my own experience. I've been married and divorced twice. And, you know, I've always tried to be a person of compassion. I never, I never felt like I was, like, throwing stones at people who were divorced or remarried before I went through the experience of divorce. But I guarantee you my perspective on divorce changed after I was divorced. Because, um, and this especially relates to the way our laws are formed. We have no-fault divorce. And so my divorce papers say, you know, the conditions of the marriage have broken down beyond repair or something like that, you know. And I didn't agree. I didn't agree to that either time. But I really didn't have much choice. Because whether I agreed or not, the divorce was going to mm -hmm. happen. And so you have this whole cadre of people in our society like myself. I would never have chosen divorce if it had been up to me. But I had no choice. Mm -hmm. And here I am divorced. And I guess that, re I, I, I just, that, that just didn't even occur to me before. Mm -hmm. I'd never really even realized that that was, that was a part of the reality. So now, of course, obviously that doesn't mean 
you know, that doesn't mean that choosing to divorce is, is the wrong thing to do. Um, we know, I mean, I, I like what the reformers had to say about it, you know, mm-hmm. that divorce is to be avoided unless it will lead to worse, yeah. worse things, worse things right? right? And, and, you know, I can think of abuse. I can think of, 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 you know, infidelity, you know, promiscuity, that's kind I of thing. I think of yelling back and forth and oh, having I know. children, I know, children live with that. I know. Um, and the, the ugliness that comes even from that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. There are all kinds of situations where marriage, a marriage continuing is just not healthy right. for the individual. And I think, I think that the concept of what is healthy maybe needs to be mm-hmm. something we bring in here. Because I, to, above all, I think God intends for our well-being. And it doesn't mean, our well-being doesn't necessarily mean what pleases us. It means what's, what's in our best interest and mm-hmm. what is good for mm-hmm. us. And, and sometimes what is good for us is going to be reconciliation, I think, if that's possible. But I realize that's not always that's possible because you possible. have to have two people willing to reconcile right. If, right. to have real reconciliation. And if one person's not willing, exactly. then it's not going anywhere. Exactly. So, I mean, I think it, it really boils down to, you know, we as a church, we have an obligation to uphold the biblical ideal. Mm-hmm. I agree. The, the biblical agree. ideal is that marriage is a permanent lifelong relationship right. and that if you divorce... There's, you really probably should should not just casually go into remarriage exactly uh, if your spouse is still alive. That's the biblical ideal. Yeah, yeah. Um, here's the other thing that I encountered along the way that helped me tremendously, and I'm not a fan of Shelby Spong's in a lot of ways. Um, some of his better known works, you know, he sort of has this persona of a debunker. And he just debunks and debunks and debunks. And, you know, I read his book about the Bible and, you know, in preparation for teaching a course on, on biblical interpretation at the previous presbytery I was in. I was really was interested to see what he had to say. And I, I agreed with some of what he had yeah. to say. But my problem was he just debunks and then he doesn't give anything positive to replace e- it exactly. with. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. However, uh, he's got some little books that he wrote early on in his career before he became famous that are wonderfully pastoral books. And one of them is a book on the Ten Commandments called Living Commandments, and I highly recommend it. And um, in the chapter on adultery, on the commandment of adultery, um, he says this. What I'm suggesting is that there's a very large area between what we would call ideal and what we would call immoral. Mm-hmm. In other words, and you might think that someone like Shelby Spong would totally debunk the biblical ideal of marriage. He doesn't do that. He upholds it. But he goes through all these very pastoral situations right. and, and says, you know, okay, maybe this is not the biblical ideal, but is it immoral? Is everything that falls short of the biblical ideal immoral, positively immoral? Right. And I, that's a great criterion. And so the idea of what's healthy mm-hmm. and the idea of... You know, okay, we, we all fall short of the biblical ideal. Even a marriage right. that lasts a lifetime is not going to be 100% pure love and kindness. Exactly. You know, and exactly. so if we can apply those two criteria, I think that can help us. Yeah, I, I think so too. And that's, I think that's a really good way to look at it. A couple things that I thought of as you were talking. One is pastors. You know, I, I remember 
w- this is why we do counseling mm-hmm. with with our couples. And if we see a couple we we really shouldn't marry, we we should tell them that we have concerns. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, hopefully everyone that comes to counseling, and hopefully they'll figure that out for themselves as they go through those steps. They'll realize, oh my gosh, we're entering into this, and we actually aren't compatible. That's that's not been my experience, unfortunately. It's not. But, I've heard of it happening, but you're yeah. right. I re- I remember. So I I've been married for oh gosh. 27 years, I think. Um, and it was pretty funny. We went to our counseling, our premarital counseling. I remember the the uh, pastor had, had carefully placed the tissues on the edge of his desk, you know, <laughs> because apparently in his experience, they were often used. And uh, it, was, it was a very short thing. And it, he was going to have us come back several times. And after the first week, I said, I don't think I need to do any more counseling. You two are fine. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I do a thing. I work through a book uh, by John Gottman, G-O-T-T-M-A-N-N, I think. And it's called The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. And it's a cheesy sounding title. But it is, a, it is probably the best book about marriage out there. Uh, it's based on literal research. They've worked with, I think, over 2,000 couples over the course of 20 years. And they put them in what they call this love lab, where they wire it for, for sound and video, and they have them wearing heart monitors. And they observe and listen, and then they go back and they debrief the couple about things. And what were you thinking here? And what were you thinking there? And so they come up with these very practical concepts, like, you know, the, the root of a successful marriage is a friendship mm-hmm. and you have to work to work. There's some practical things you can do to nurture that friendship. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what the book is about. Right. Uh, some right, practical right. things you can do right. to nurture yeah. the friendship yeah, yeah, that yeah. is the basis for marriage. Oh, another thing that Gottman is known for is what he calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which means, oh, yes. you know, the, the four, the four signs that you're, you're moving in a in toward divorce. And the first one is criticism where you attack the person instead of addressing the problem. Them. The second one is defensiveness, where you sort of feel attacked and you just kind of you know deflect and you don't take responsibility. The third one is contempt. Okay. Where you, you know, you in in maybe overt ways or maybe covert ways, eye rolling, sighing, you know, or name calling, sarcasm. You know, mm-hmm. you 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 don't. You, you make it clear that you are displeased with your spouse mm-hmm. and your spouse is not good enough. And, 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 and so you express that displeasure. That, that kind of contempt yeah. is just yeah. poison to a marriage relationship. Yeah. And then finally a stonewalling uh, where, you know, things have gotten so bad, the relationship has died and the two of you just kind of live your own lives and, and go your separate ways and just kind of go have it. And, um, you know, unfortunately, the reality is that there are all too many long-term marriages in this country that have gotten to the place of stonewalling, yeah, and they just yeah. continue to live together because yeah. they don't want to break up. Exactly. Um, and and I can't say that that's healthy for anybody. I don't think that's. I don't think good it really is. I don't think it really is because your your whole everything coming in is just such a negative mm-hmm. space. Um, you know, and when that negativity takes over, it's really hard to respond to life and joy. Yeah. Um, and while I haven't been that situation, I've been, I've been in other situations like that work situations. Mm-hmm. I was at a church. I felt that way. And so when that negative energy, it's like, 
I don't feel like going out sharing the good news. I just feel like going and sitting in bed and watching useless television because I just don't want to, I'm just going to deflect. Well, and because, because, because that negative energy has just uh, torn you down. Exactly. It does. Yeah. And I've been there. I mean, uh, you know, I have said that perhaps, um, uh, both of my wives who divorced me did me a favor actually, because, uh, you know, I've been there where the negative energy was tearing me down and I, I was in denial about it. I didn't want to admit it. Um, I'd, I, I guess I'm enough of an idealist that I'd like to think that with the right kind of help, uh, both of those marriages could have been salvaged. I, I'd like to think that. But I realize that there are some relationships that are just so broken that they're just not going to work. Right, right. And so I think, you know, I think we, we have to be we have to be compassionate with yes. this, you know. And, yes. you know, that's one of the things that's missing with that sort of literal approach. You know, it's just sort of a strict, I'm just going to throw the Bible at you and beat you over the head with mm-hmm. it. There's no compassion in that. Exactly. And, and all it does is inflict pain on the part of well-meaning people. This man is, that you mentioned, obviously he's concerned to, to live a life that's honoring to God. Exactly. And yep. he, you know, he's been told things that make him think that he can never do that. Right. Well, that's right. ridiculous. Yeah. That's Exa- ridiculous. Exactly. You know, the, the plain truth is that there are people who have divorced and remarried while their former spouses were still alive and have formed families that mm-hmm. have been honoring to God. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we should celebrate tr- that. I would say that's true in this case. You know, he, yeah. has, he has two children from the first marriage. He has five from the second marriage. Yeah. And, um, you know, they come to church every Sunday. But um, I know this weighs on his heart. And uh, Well, and here's, here's yeah. another situation that I've encountered. We may not know this, and not everybody may know this, but um, especially women who have had a husband who was the main breadwinner of the family, when they retire, they may claim their husband's Social Security if they have not remarried. Oh, yeah. And so I've had, I've had women who are in that situation come to me and say, you know, I've met someone and we care about each other. And we would like to move in together, but I can't. We can't get married because we'll. I'll lose my social security. And are we going to be living in sin? Oh wow! And you know, it's that whole living in sin thing just needs to go away. I mean, to some extent, you know, I, 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 I say that a little, little bit with 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 concern because I don't want it to sound like I'm just I'm just saying, well, do whatever you want. But here's a person, you know, they, they, you know, two people who care about each other. This is not a casual relationship. They, they want to spend the rest of their lives with each mm-hmm. other. They can't marry because of the way the laws of this country right. are written. It would disadvantage right. them so much that they couldn't afford to live together. Right. What are they supposed to do? Right. You right. know, and, and to me, I, I told them, you know what? I, I think in God's eyes, uh, you know, God understands that this is not that that if you if it weren't for the laws of this country you would right. get married. So it it reminds me of going back to the Middle Ages. What defines marriage? Yeah. You know, um, and so what an interesting what an interesting thing. Uh, it's it, it, as we're talking. It is interesting as I think about marriage today that um, it's we have this kind of double, especially those of us in the church have this kind of double that it's you know, sanctioned by the church as well as the government. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost, even though there's a separation of church and state, it still kind of has it that is. crown on it. It is. Um, 
Yeah, and as I mentioned before, I mean, uh, there, there are a lot of pastors who wish that it, that we just the church didn't have any role in marriage. I, I'm not for that myself because I I I like working with couples in counseling. I meet yeah. I meet with them yeah. six times. We go through this book, and and whether or not it takes is up to them. But you know, I feel pretty good about that. I think it's good, and I think it's good because I think. Um, especially people of faith. If you're a person of faith, yes. you should want your marriage to be within that, within that faith tradition. Yeah. And I think you, I think you can take marriage awfully lightly and to take it as something that is, if it's God's, God's call on your life um, and you're making this choice to be in a marriage, then that, that call is on the marriage too. So you sure. have to give it that chance. Absolutely. So. And I think that's the, I think that's the key here. And, and, you know, Jesus would affirm that we not take marriage lightly, yeah. that we not take divorce lightly, that we not take remarriage lightly, right. you know, that it's, it's, it's something that we enter into with care, with thought, with prayer. You know, we had it. We used to have this lang, this phrase back in the '90s. We called it covenant love. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah. And it kind of went by the wayside. I'm not sure why, but I think it was a nice concept because the idea is, you know, it if there is a love that is a that is 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 so strong between you that you are connected together by this covenant that you care about each other and you're committed to one another. Um, that really is what we would consider to be marriage. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, uh, we would, I think we would hope to see that, you know, there. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously nobody's going to live up to that ideal all the time. Every marriage is going to have its ebb and flow. Um, but, um, I, you know, I think, I think we can, again, I, I think the two, the two extremes to avoid here are, you know, on the one hand, beating people over the head right. and on the other hand saying, well, this doesn't really apply to, to us today. So we're just going to toss it out. Right. You know, I agree. Jesus said, you know, what God is joined together, let no one separate. I think we should affirm that. Yeah, I think um, so too. Yeah. But I think we should affirm it in a way that we make it clear that, um, um, divorce is not a perpetual sin. Uh, remarriage after divorce is not a perpetual sin. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of divorces may be ill-advised. Unfortunately, a lot of remarriages after divorce may be Um, ill-advised. You know, there there seem to be some people who get caught in a pattern of they they get married, they get divorced. Within Mm -hmm. a year or so, they're remarried. Within two or three years, they're divorced again within, you know, and it's just a, it's just a repeating cycle. And, you know, the best thing I can say in that regard is you got to take the time to deal with your own issues and, and to get into a place where you're in a healthy place before you even consider, you know, the possibility of getting into another marriage um, if one has failed because, because a marriage is a two way street, right? It takes two people to make it work. And if it fails, Two people want to. Both people contributed to the failure, right? And I've I've told people I think the from what I've learned, one of the most important lessons, I guess, one of the important one of the important tasks a person can do for themselves after they've been through a divorce is to take the time to really examine what did I do to lead to the breakdown right. of the marriage, and and if you can do that, you know. And I would say, you know, I've been divorced. I've been divorced now for almost 10 years, the second time. And I'm still learning lessons about Mm -hmm. myself in that regard. And I, I, you know, 
earlier on in my process, I probably would have wanted to rush into a marriage and, and because I didn't like living alone. Right. And, and that's part of the challenge, you know. But um, now I'm at the place where, you know, it's more of, well, I don't want to do it unless it's the right the thing. The right thing. Yep. And I think that should be, that should be <laughs> part of our dialogue in every marriage, in every right. divorce, in every remarriage, in every aspect of this, right. you know, that, that is it the right thing? Is it, is it yeah. good and right and is true? Is it good and right and true? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, Alan. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.